Hey, podcasters. Thanks for joining us. Today, we are going to dive deeper into colorectal cancer, who's at risk, what happens after diagnosis, and the treatment options available. We're going to throw it over to our friend, Diet for this one. Take it away, Diet. Thank you. Today, I am with Dr. Raman, colorectal surgeon at Mercy One Des Moines Medical Center, and his associate, Jody Wilson, advanced registered nurse practitioner. So welcome, Dr. Raman and Jody. Thank you so much for joining me today. Uh, in recognition of Colorectal Cancer Awareness Month, we are going to discuss uh, a couple of different topics, um, but one of them as first is what should patients do after they've heard those three dreaded words, you've got cancer. Um, so we want to touch on several different portions to this, um, but first, before we dive into this, can you give our listeners an idea of how common colon cancer is? Who's the average patient, male or female? Yeah, thank you, Diet, for having us uh, today on this podcast. Colon cancer, uh, colorectal cancer, is the third most common cancer, uh, excluding skin cancers in the United States. It is commonly a disease of people in their 60s and 70s. Men, typical age is about 68 for colon cancer, and women is about 72 for colon cancer. Whereas for rectal cancer, it is slightly younger. It's about 63. About 1 in 23 men and 1 in 25 women will get colon or rectal cancer in their lifetime. Wow. Okay. And have you seen an increase in recent years of those um, particular diseases on the rise for one gender or the other? Or Yeah. So overall, the incidence of colon cancer is decreasing as compared to what it was 15 years ago or 20 years ago. We think that this is due to the increased screening that, that is being performed where polyps are diagnosed at an early stage and removed before they turn into cancer. So the incidence in people above the age of 50 is going down, but the incidence of rectal cancer, especially in people less than the age of 50, is increasing. Um, for unclear reasons, could be due to lifestyle, could be due to other risk factors. But what we know for sure is that we are seeing more and more younger patients, um, less than the age of 50, getting diagnosed with rectal cancer. So after a patient has received a cancer diagnosis and are probably thinking, what now? Where do you suggest that they start? Um, it's, it's a very tough situation to be in when, when someone hears the word, you have cancer. It is, it is one of the hardest things that they would ever have to face in their, in their life. And this, this needs a lot of correct information. First and foremost, I would suggest that they start with a provider that they uh, trust, which is typically their physio, you know, primary care physician, okay. so that they can find out the specialists in the field of colon or rectal cancer who can treat them. Various specialists are involved in treating colon or rectal cancer that include surgeons, that includes medical oncologists and radiation oncologists. So depending on what their disease uh, stage is, they might need one or more specialists in their field. So typically the primary care doctor is the one who can make good recommendations. Um, I would also strongly suggest not to look up things on Dr. Google okay. because that sure. um, more often than not, patients get very anxious from a lot of misinformation that is there mm -hmm. um, because most of the information that is present online might be irrelevant and can cause unnecessary anxiety. So I would suggest that be very careful and choose uh, what you're going to look up on the internet. Okay. 
Sure, absolutely. Yeah. And is it also, too, that they might look up something that, like you said, may be irrelevant because it doesn't apply to them based on their particular pathology or stage of cancer or something? Or Yeah, okay. yeah absolutely. Because some of the information that we have online could be from studies that are older. Oh, okay. But, you know, so if you look up that statistics and go by those, they can't, they are not often very encouraging. But there is a lot of advance that is being done. Um, in the field of colorectal cancer, where survival numbers have significantly improved. So if one were to go by, you know, five or six-year-old statistical data, it might not be relevant today. And it is very difficult for patients to parse out what stage they are in unless they have all the information, okay. uh, which typically they won't have right after they have been diagnosed with cancer because they need okay. to go through a series of tests. Okay. So they might be looking at data that is irrelevant and as I said before, can cause them undue anxiety. It's it's not worth it. And so are there some tips that you can share for patients coming to their first appointment? Maybe that first provider that they are meeting with, the first specialist they're meeting with after their primary care provider. Just some tips that you can share for them, what to expect or... So, so typically, um, the first visit is a very um, anxious visit because sure. cancer is a dreaded diagnosis. It's a very difficult diagnosis to handle. Mm-hmm. And often, as I said before, some of these patients are younger, they have young families. So the emotional burden of this is quite significant. Mm -hmm. And a lot of information will be given and exchanged in the first visit. So I would, I would strongly recommend that patients, you know, have a loved one or another family member who can also listen in on the conversation and take notes. It might not be a bad idea to ask, you know, a lot of questions and write down the answers to those questions. Mm -hmm. Asking the provider to repeat the information would also be a good tip Mm -hmm. so that you can clearly write down so that you capture all the information that they give. One other recommendation that I would have is is to um, get a phone number for the office so that they can call back with questions because often we give patients a lot of information their first visit and the questions don't arise right during that conversation but more often than not it will arise after the conversation is done after the visit is done patients are in the parking lot or they drive back home Mm -hmm. or once they go home and then they speak with the rest of the family members and then the questions will arise so it is it is very vital that you can that you call back um, so that to have these questions clarified at a later date as well. Okay, sure. Yeah. Wonderful. Yeah. So what are some of these important questions to ask at the first appointment? Most, most commonly, patients will come in with a question of what stage is it? Mm-hmm. You know, so the stage of colon cancer um, or rectal cancer um, goes from one to four. Four is the most advanced stage where it is where it has spread to other organs, commonly the liver okay. or to the lungs. Even if it has spread to the liver or to the peritoneum or to the lungs, depending on how much of the disease has spread, Mm -hmm. we might be able to cure these patients. So, which again goes back to some of the information that is present online, Mm -hmm. where stage four doesn't mean that nothing can be done and therefore no treatment, you know, will be successful. We have cured patients with stage four disease as long as it's not too much of a disease burden. Mm. Um, Stage 4 is where it has spread to other parts of the body. Stage 3 is where the cancer has spread from the colon wall into the lymph nodes. And stages 1 and 2 is where it is limited to the colon or to the rectum. So the most common question is what stage it is. 
The next is, what treatment options do I have? Mm -hmm. Again, another important question is, will I have a bag and will it be permanent? Mm -hmm. You know, when I say, when I use the word bag, it means a colostomy. Okay. Um, where the intestine is sutured to the skin and the waste is eliminated out through the skin and not through the na natural anal opening. Mm -hmm. So, so these are common questions. It depends on the stage of, you know, uh, stage of the cancer, the location of the cancer. Typically, colon cancer will not need a permanent or a temporary bag. And if it is just stage one to one to three, we can treat it with surgery first. And if it is stage three, patients might need chemotherapy depending on the final pathology after surgery. If it is rectal cancer, patients might need a temporary bag, a temporary ileostomy bag for a few months after they have finished their treatment and surgery. Mm -hmm. And very rarely, they might need a permanent colostomy bag. Okay. The chances of needing to have a permanent colostomy bag has decreased because of the experts that we have in treating cancer where we are able to save even a small amount of rectum and the sphincter muscles so that they can we can hook up the colon to the remnant rectum mm -hmm. and, uh, and avoid a permanent bag. Um, are there separate surgeries to um, actually attach a colostomy bag and then when you have to take it back out if it's um, temporary or that's correct yeah, okay. that's correct so um, typical um, typically the first surgery will involve removing the cancer and hooking the ball back together mm -hmm. and for rectal cancers that have been treated with radiation or that are very low close to the anus at the same time, we will give them a temporary ileostomy bag. Okay. And about three to four months later, after the new plumbing or where the colon has been joined to the rectum has healed, we will make sure that that has healed well based on a few tests. And if that looks good, then the ileostomy bag will be taken down. That is a much shorter operation, less invasive as compared to the major uh, cancer resection operation. Um, so you talked about that as, um, talked a little bit about treatment options. Uh, you touched on chemotherapy. Are there any other treatment options? Yes. Yes. So for colon cancer, usual mainstays of treatment are surgery and chemotherapy. Surgery for stages one to three and stage four that is removable via surgery. Mm -hmm. Chemotherapy is indicated when patients have cancer in their lymph nodes or with stage four disease. Occasionally, radiation might be needed in patients with colon cancer, especially if the tumor was causing a blockage. Or when we remove the cancer, we have very close margin, which means that the chance of tumor coming back is slightly high, and we want to decrease that risk by giving radiation. So typical, you know, patient with colon cancer often will need surgery, plus or minus chemo, very rarely radiation. Whereas for rectal cancer, the treatment is slightly different. Okay. For rectal cancer, if the tumor has gone through the wall of the rectum or if the tumor has gone to lymph nodes based on MRI scans that are done once diagnosis is made, then we start with chemotherapy and radiation. We shrink the tumor down. We make sure that the tumor is responding well. And after a period of about four to six months for this treatment, we proceed to surgery. After surgery, they will have the temporary bag for a few months in certain situations, mm -hmm. and then we'll take the bag down. Okay. We have moved to this new concept called total neoadjuvant therapy, where all the chemo and radiation is given before we do the operation. Hmm. A few years before, we used to give chemotherapy and radiation before surgery, then surgery with a temporary bag if they have received radiation, 
and then more chemotherapy after surgery, especially with the temporary bag, it was very challenging because patients would often get dehydrated. Mm -hmm. But now moving all the chemotherapy up front, we are able to give them all the intended chemotherapy, mm -hmm. increasing, the increasing the chances that the tumor will be completely gone by the time we do surgery. Okay. And by decreasing, you know, recurrence rates um, and also giving all the treatment up front helps in shrinking the tumor increasing the odds of avoiding a permanent bag. Oh, wonderful. Yeah. Okay, that's yeah. great. So when we talk about some of the different treatment uh, options as far as like radiation and chemotherapy, what are some of the common side effects of these two treatment options? Yeah, so sometimes I'll, I'll start with surgical um, side effects first. Mm -hmm. um, if, if a piece of colon is removed, probably about six inches along with the lymph nodes around, um, around that area, often there won't be any major change because okay. parts of the colon just acts as a conduit or a pipe okay. and you're just shortening the pipe. There's okay. not much change that happens. Mm -hmm. um, if you look at the right side of the colon where the small intestine joins the colon and we remove that, that area probably about six to eight inches, then that part will typically absorb water and sodium. Mm -hmm. When that part is gone, the rest of the colon will not be able to Act, uh, um, act and make up for the loss of the six to eight inches and therefore patients will have more frequent bowel movements for the first few months. Hmm, okay. So they will have increased frequency of stools and maybe slightly watery stools but this can be easily controlled by increasing fiber in, your, in the diet or by taking Imodium which slows you know intestinal transit. Mm -hmm. So that's the side effect of surgery on the right side. For patients who have surgery where part of the rectum is removed, they will have more frequent bowel movements because the rectum is a storage organ. You don't have that storage capacity anymore. Oh. So more frequent bowel movements and occasionally needing to go to the bathroom quickly mm -hmm. um, and occasionally very minor leakage depending on how much radiation they have received or if they have not received radiation. So that's why we are very careful about treating rectal cancer the right way, making sure that we are able to save the sphincters and those who have good sphincter function. Mm -hmm. And sometimes patients have such poor sphincter function even before they start treatment that they might be better off with having a permanent bag that might give them more mm -hmm. freedom and not having to look for a bathroom anywhere they travel. Gotcha, okay, good yeah. to know. So the, the side effects of, of chemotherapy uh, commonly is fatigue, um, diarrhea, nausea, vomiting, Hair loss is not typically seen, um, but one of the chemotherapy medications can cause cold intolerance um, as well as neuropathy in the, in, in the feet and toes, um, in, in the hands and feet, um, tingling and numbness. Mm -hmm. so, so these are the common side effects of, of chemotherapy agents. Radiation can cause skin burns, but that is all reversible. Okay. Uh, but sometimes radiation can affect the function of the rectum that is left behind, which again goes hand in hand with what I said about surgery, increased frequency of bowel movements, urgency meaning needing to go right away and occasional seepage. Okay. Yeah. And so when you are evaluating a patient for the types of treatments that they need, is that something that you also kind of keep in mind when evaluating the stage that they're at and the cancer, like, you know, knowing that these potential side effects are going to be there and how that will affect their quality of life? Are these all things you take into consideration? Absolutely. Absolutely. You know, that's why the first visit, we, we talk a lot. We, okay. we ask a lot of questions as to what their baseline function is, mm -hmm. okay. um, how often they have bowel movements if they have urgency, if they have any accidents, mm -hmm. um, what the stage of cancer is and whether they need chemotherapy or radiation. And when, when we do an exam, we check how their muscle tone is. Mm -hmm. 
Um, so we put all this together and we want when we ask patients what matters to them, what you know, some patients will absolutely not want a permanent bag at any cost, whereas others will be okay with having a permanent bag if that's what the situation needed and if that gave them more freedom. So it comes down to what each patient wants. We want to, first and foremost, we want to cure patients of their cancer, but at the risk of as minimal impact on their quality of life as possible. Mm -hmm. So um, this this is a conversation that we have with patients, not just in the first visit, but in subsequent visits as well. And we figure out what their priorities are and how we can achieve those priorities without compromising cancer care. So another question I had was, um, should a patient consider any lifestyle changes while going through treatment, maybe such as diet changes or exercise? Um, Yeah, that's a a great question. Um, Colorectal cancer um, risk factors, some of them can be modified, some of them cannot be modified. Mm -hmm. Risk factors that cannot be modified are what genes you're born with, Mm -hmm. what your family risk is, and whatnot. Mm -hmm. The risk factors that you can modify includes lifestyle, diet, high in fruits and vegetables, lots of fiber in the diet decreases risk of colon rectal cancer. Um, So, I would strongly suggest that patients switch to a plant-based diet. Other studies have shown that um, having a lot of red meat consumption, Mm -hmm. uh, more than 100 grams per day, um, having processed meat consumption, all increases risk of developing colon and rectal cancer. So plant-based diet, less red meat, less processed uh, less processed meat, all those are risk factors. Other risk factors, alcohol and smoking, mm-hmm. um, having more than one to two drinks a day increases risk of colon rectal cancer. Smoking increases risk of colon rectal cancer. So these are, you know, we talk about these things at the office visit and we counsel patients on quitting smoking, quitting alcohol, as well as being more active physically. Physical um, activity has uh, has been shown to correlate with risk of colon cancer, not as much for rectal cancer. And patients who are sedentary, who spend a lot of time sitting in front of the TV or just in front of the computer, have a higher risk of colon cancer. But the good thing is, mm-hmm. by increasing physical activity, they can bring down the risk of colon cancer. Mm-hmm. So just the diagnosis doesn't mean that you cannot modify any of the risk factors because even after you're cured of this episode of cancer, you can subsequently decrease risk of future cancers by changing your lifestyle. So there is value in doing that. Yeah, absolutely. Jody, now we're going to talk a little bit about prehabilitation. Um, If you could please tell us something about prehabilitation care. And I understand this is kind of big in cancer care and tell us how this will help patients. Sure. Thank you, Diet. Um, kind of goes along in addition to, as Dr. Raman spoke earlier, about lifestyle changes, things that can happen while going through treatment or preparing to go through treatment and or recovering from surgery. Uh, prehabilitation focuses on the care before surgery and or chemotherapy or radiation in the fact that there are modifiable things that you can do, such as changing your eating habits, exercising, quitting smoking or quitting drinking, um, giving yourself the best chance uh, on the backside of either chemotherapy and or surgery in order to lessen the burden as far as being able to recover and get through what we need to get through as far as treatment. So prehabilitation is exactly that. Prehab is uh, focusing on nutrition, focusing on exercising, and all of those modifiable habits that give us the best chance before surgery 
to, like I said before, uh, is to lessen the burden after surgery as far as when it comes into recovery. So we really focus on lab work, um, increasing protein intake in the diet, focusing on exercising and getting out, being mobile, and really having a higher impact on the colorectal and rectal cancer patients in addition to the other uh, cancer community patients that we, we service. It is a really beneficial program in that we can really help modify patients as far as as best as we can get them ready. Dr. Raman's analogy is training for a marathon. The same addition or same thing in preparing for treatment is the same thing as preparing for a marathon. We don't do it in a week. We need to do it over the course of many weeks and or months in order to best prepare our body to go through what we're going to go through, which is a great analogy. And I think it hits home with a lot of patients when you put it in that perspective and they get a, they can wrap their mind around a little bit more of there are things that I can do to better serve myself to get through treatment or get through surgery and recover the best that I can. Absolutely. But does that also kind of help patients too to have kind of a better frame of mind to have good, to give them back a little bit of sense of control in this very scary and uncertain time? Very much so. Uh, control as soon as folks hear the word cancer, sometimes our mind shuts down and we automatically gravitate towards worst case scenario. When, as Dr. Raman spoke earlier, there are many advances and things that have transpired and that happen uh, that we can make folks even with stage four or stage three disease burden free. And there's a lot of things that they can do on their own. And you're right, prehabilitation gives them that control back to be able to modify behaviors, modify lifestyles in order to better serve themselves, whether going through treatment and or surgery. Wonderful. And and like Dr. Rollin uh, on into survivorship uh, and also hopefully reduce their risk of any future cancers or reoccurrence. As Absolutely. Well. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Wonderful. So there's one other thing I wanted us to touch on today, and that is uh, the Des Moines Medical Center has a very special designation. Um, you all are part of an accredited program called the National Accreditation Program for Rectal Cancer, NAPRC. Can you tell us a little bit about this program and why this matters to patients? Sure, most certainly. The NAPRC, or National Accreditation Program for Rectal Cancer, is an excellent program that was developed uh, between the Ostrich Consortium and the Commission on Cancer. It envelops a multidisciplinary team, which is consistent with surgeons, medical, radiation oncologists, pathologists, and radiologists come together to provide continuity of care. Basically, it has standardized processes for rectal cancer patients through program structure, patient care processes, performance improvements, and being able to fashion this after folks going through cancer so nothing gets missed. Okay. They are taken through a pathway, if you will, and meet with the surgeon. Um, their cases are discussed in a uh, tumor board, and things are at a multidisciplinary level discussed. Treatment programs are designed, and also in inclusive of this is a nurse navigator who also follows along through treatment and is a wonderful resource for our patients as well. Mm-hmm. And fragmented care before the NAPRC happened where 
things were not done maybe in a timely manner or okay. certain scans didn't get done or lab work and or other processes that may have possibly gotten missed that may have impeded cancer care for the rectal cancer patient. That's where the NAPRC has done a phenomenal job in developing this program to guide patients through a process that allows the multidisciplinary approach in continuity of care is the biggest thing. And that is probably the most important piece to patients is the continuity of care. Things are done in a timely fashion. Mm -hmm. Their cases are discussed. Pathology is discussed before and after surgery. Um, Their cases are reviewed on a multitude of times depending on what their process is according to their stage, uh, whether it be chemo and radiation and or surgery. Mm -hmm. And I believe the impact since we have started the NAPRC here at Mercy One Des Moines has been leaps and bounds productive and beneficial to patients and our family. Wonderful. Wonderful. I'll just add on to that because studies show, especially in Europe, that having a standardized pathway for rectal cancer in a multidisciplinary fashion improves outcomes with increasing survival and decreasing recurrence of rectal cancer. And that's the goal that we aim to do here in the United States. Yeah. And we and we were um, lucky enough to become uh, only the fifth program in the country to be accredited and the first non-pilot to receive accreditation. Well, thank you both so very much for sharing your time with our listeners today. And we appreciate you speaking to us about uh, all of this information and um, appreciate your time. Thank you so much. Thank you. Thanks so much, Diet. That was some great information. If you guys want to hear more information about colorectal cancer screenings, don't forget to check out our other episode earlier done this month called Improving Your Gut Health. And as always, if you have any questions or feedback, we'd love to hear from you and specifically about colorectal cancer or any episodes we've had. Please send your email to podcast at mercyhealth.com. And you can find all of our episodes and send some feedback to us because you know we love to hear feedback over on our website at mercyone.org slash podcast. As always, have a great day. Thanks for listening and live your best life.